when you smile I am undone My son Look at my son Pride is not the word I'm looking for There is so much more inside me now Oh, Philip, you outshine the morning sun My son When you smile I fall apart And I thought I was so smart My father wasn't around My father wasn't around I swear that I'll, I'll be around for you I'll do whatever it takes I'll make a million mistakes I'll, I'll make, make the world safe and sound for you Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, December 27th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at foulspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. And also with us, we have a very special guest. Aaron Lazar is joining us. We talked about Aaron last week about Broadway lullabies, and we said, hey, let's try to get Aaron on this week. And so we'll talk about it again. So Aaron is an actor, singer, producer, and entrepreneur from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. He's an athlete and a performer from high school. Aaron graduated magna cum laude from duke university whoa where he studied pre-med and music after earning an mfa in musical theater from cincinnati college and conservatory of music aaron put plans of being a doctor on hold and moved to new york city his career spans from broadway television film and concerts has allowed him to share his passion for all the arts with audiences worldwide Aaron, thank you for getting up, I should say, from Los Angeles or uh, uh, the West Coast. I don't know if you're actually in Los Angeles or not. I am. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, and welcome to Sunday morning. Uh, <laughs> on the East Coast, it is uh, a little bit later than on the West Coast, but we really appreciate getting up and talking with us. So, James, I have to, uh, I have to say very quickly that uh, Sunday mornings used to be like the great Sunday mornings were were like my dad throwing my brother and sister and I in the in the nineteen the whatever it was nineteen eighty eight Lincoln Town Car <laughs> and going to get bagels from the uh, you know fresh hot bagels from the bagel place and and having a nice family morning and the the next best thing is waking up to Broadway radio with Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia. <laughs> because these guys, so we just, we go way back. I'm, I'm such big fans of these guys. They supported me very early on in my career and, and became buddies. And, uh, it was, it was a wonderful surprise to, uh, to, to find them on with us this morning. So, Hey guys, it's, it's great to be reunited. What a nice thing to say. Very nice. <laughs> 
Especially the bagels. Same here. <laughs> right? <No. laughs> you don't got the bagel. You know, you can get Peter and Michael in your ears That's every, right. uh, every week uh, sure, through a podcast, but the bagels are hard the bagel, to get. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, send you, we'll ship you some. Well, you guys, you, know, you guys are on the East Coast. You, you, you've got access to good bagels. here in LA. All right. They're okay. I am. I hard plea for you. Aaron, my wife works for American Airlines. I can throw some uh, throw some uh, bagels on the flight to LAX, and you can pick them up at the airport. They'll still be warm. I yes, think we, you got a deal. Yeah. <laughs> so, Aaron, you have produced and performed on uh, one of your own projects, uh, Broadway Lullabies. Uh, tell us how that came up. I mean, it looked like it was a Kickstarter that was started over the summer. Was, was the genesis of it over the summer, or was it earlier than that? The genesis was a couple of years ago. I just thought it would be cool to make an album of, you know, my favorite Broadway songs as lullabies. And, and I, I can't remember where that sparked from, but it must have just come from my kids. So I have, I have two boys, uh, just turned nine and almost 11. And I would, I sing these guys to sleep. Um, and, uh, when the pandemic hit in March, you know, things got scary for everybody and my kids were freaked out. And my younger guy was having panic attacks, just not really knowing what world we were going to wake up to the next morning. So, uh, singing, singing everybody to sleep became a, a nice cherished moment for us at the end of the day. And I just thought, I bet you there's other parents that are doing this and, and helping their kids calm down. And I wonder if my Broadway starry friends who are parents are doing this and, Maybe now's the time to make this album. Um, so I just started to call people. And uh, the artists who came on board uh, were just so amazing and generous. And we're like, yeah, of course, this is a great idea. And we, we are definitely doing this. And we think it would be something that would help kids and families everywhere. And then uh, I was able to bring on the the key ingredients are also the the producers right because we had to make this album entirely remotely and um uh austin cook who i worked with on the national tour of dear evan hansen um who then became my music director for my solo concerts and cabarets i called austin and was like would you be interested in arrangements because he's a brilliant pianist he was a Wunderkind child concert pianist in his, you know, former life traveling the world playing piano. And we had such a positive experience working together on my concerts. And I knew he could just throw together arrangements and work with artists from afar because that's what we had done before. And so he loved it and he came on board. And then I had just come off of Filthy Rich where I worked with music producer named Travis Howard. And Travis and I had a blast in the recording studio and the guy's a genius uh, behind the soundboard. And Travis uh, actually lives only a couple miles from, from me here in LA and called Travis and he said, hell yeah, man. He's from Nashville. He said, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> um, and then we just got to work and figured it out. And, and I'm so grateful to the Kickstarter donors who, who funded us. And now we've been able to we've been able to put this music out there into the world, which I'm I'm really proud of. All right, now here's the thing, though. Um, Audrey McDonald told me that when she used to uh, go around the house singing, vocalizing, her daughter would say, <laughs> "Mommy, stop singing!" Now, when you were singing, 
when you were singing to your two little boys, <laughs> were they appreciative of your voice? Or <laughs> were they like Audra? Uh, no, I feel Audra's pain. I can definitely, there's, there's, there's definitely a whole lot of like, <laughs> daddy, you're so loud. Um, daddy, can you please stop singing? But that's, that's daytime singing. That's uh-huh. like, that's like warming up, trying to keep, uh-huh. keep the, you know, the engine in the car well oiled and, and, mm-hmm. uh, in shape. Uh, but nighttime, I think, uh, it's, it's a special time. It just, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I went through a divorce a couple of years ago and, uh, it was, it was tough on everybody and mm-hmm. time with the kids. I was also, then I was on the road, man, you know, for, for 17 months, putting, uh, putting things back together, uh, between the Evan Hansen tour and, and filthy rich in New Orleans. And so being back with my kids at night, I was one of the people who, you know, didn't didn't mind the pandemic from that respect. I I got to be home um, and get to be home with my kids, uh, and so I'm just really grateful that creativity we we were able to just create because I think that helped. I mean, it certainly helped me stay sane through all this. Um, it's just such a such a crazy time, and so I'm really grateful that we were able to pour ourselves into into this. I don't know that we'd have been able to do it in, you know, in non-pandemic times. I, I wonder if, if people would have been able to focus and throw themselves into it in the same way, you know. Right. The album is so wonderful in so many ways, but I love the song selection. I, I guess maybe you would say some of the songs are more obvious than others. Uh, Patina Miller does not while I'm around and, Adam Jacobs does Never Never Land from Peter Pan. But then you have songs like Dear Theodosia from Hamilton, which, you know, I, I mean, I think that's just so wonderful to hear that song as a, as a sweet little lullaby. Thank you. I mean, that, that one is, is my younger son. Uh, that's his favorite song from Hamilton. Oh. He, he would sing it every day, all day. And so I said, wow. well, let's do it together on it. And we go... You know, I record the, the crazy thing about making an album during pandemic is, I mean, I recorded my vocals in my closet, you know, like <laughs> you, you, you buy a, a good microphone and then all the magic happens in the studio uh, <laughs> with with meaning Travis and Austin doing things in their home studios and emailing things and files to each other and, and, and me listening and giving notes and stuff back and forth. I mean, it, it's that kind of production i mean it's, it's wild but the goal was can we make an album that doesn't sound like it's being recorded in our closets right mm-hmm. um because i don't really i wanted the quality of it to so my the demands i put on the team were high because i said you know guys it can't just sound like something we threw together i mean this is this is a this is too good we have too many amazing artists and and uh, and they said, of course, you know, we let's let's figure out how to do that. So from a production standpoint, it was it was challenging and very rewarding. But the song selection was a blast because um, it just came from the hearts of the artists. You know, what what are your favorite songs with your kids? And then, um, you know, Travis, who did the arrangements for uh, "You Walk with Me," Casey Levy from uh, Full Monty, and Corey Cott's "River in the Rain." You know, he's got a He's got a country pop kind of vibe to his arrangements. Um, and he, those just came to him immediately. And then, you know, Austin's arrangements, 
he did the bulk of them, but like it started with mine where I just said, I just want the simplest lullaby ever. I mean, that's how I, I want it to sound like I'm actually singing to my kids. Um, and then grew into him being inspired for different songs like children will listen or, or Patina's arrangement. Um, and, uh, I thought, well, how's this all going to come together? You know, how do we, how do we take these different eclectic arrangements and put them together? And, song order became the way for me i was like well the the the, the way we order these you know the, the way we line them up and deliver them to people as a sonic experience um is one way we can do that and tell tell a story um and i thought that came together nicely so i'm thrilled that you i mean was that you michael that was uh Talking before was that James? I couldn't. Yeah, no, that was me. And yeah, and we—it's such an amazing, wonderful lineup. We probably should just tell tell the whole thing because everyone is going to want this album. It's you. You do till there was you. Uh, then Adam Jacobs does Never Never Land. Uh, then you and Adam together do Dear Theodosia. Alex Gemignani, Children Will Listen. Ashley Brown, Stay Awake and Feed the Birds for Mary Poppins. Uh, uh, K- I, it's Casey Levy. That's how she pronounces it, right? Uh, I've always said Levy, but you, you might be right. <laughs> oh, but it's K- it's Casey, right? It's Casey. Yeah. yeah, Casey Levy Levy. <laughs> does you does you walk with me from the Full Monty? What a wonderful choice. Uh, Corey Cott, River in the Rain, gorgeous rendition. Kelly O'Hara, James's friend. Uh, Good night, my someone. <laughs> uh, Nikki Renee Daniels and Jeff Creedy. Uh, I don't have it open here. Maybe. Maybe. And Bettina Miller, not while I'm around. Sweet dreams be yours, dear, if dreams there be. Sweet dreams to carry you close to me. I wish they may, and I wish they might. Now, good night, my someone. Um, were the ground rules that you had to be a parent to be on this recording? They were. For, for, I, I, I hope there will be future volumes. And it was tough because I didn't want to feel like we were restricted. I mean, you know, there are so many artists who are just, I would so love to work with and, and, and hear. But I thought for this first one, um, if we could, uh, work with artists who were parents. I don't know. It was an ingredient that just seemed to be right for the time. Um, and, uh, and I'm so grateful to everyone who you just named because, um, everybody was just a joy to work with and fun. And, um, I love singing with these people. I mean, Nikki and I were in school together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Peter, you saw us and, and, uh, mm-hmm. saw us my senior year uh, or second year of grad school, I should say. And, uh, and everyone else I'd worked with in some way, shape or form. Um, and Corey and I had just worked on filthy rich together. Um, and so I was talking to Corey about this actually while we were shooting that. I, I don't, it's just, an, it's just a concept that I've always wanted to, to bring to life. Um, and then pandemic made it the right time. And 
um, here we are. Now, um, you mentioned that your son was singing. Um, <clears throat> yeah, if he were to go into the business, would you be encouraging? I mean, after all, here you were on the track to be a doctor somewhere along the line. When you told your parents that you weren't going to be a doctor, <laughs> did they both rush to the oven to put their heads in it? Or did they say, wonderful, Aaron, that's great. We're so happy. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a key question. Um, would I, the first part of your question, would I, would I be supportive? I, I, I would, I would hope I would be, um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> we've got some time. I mean, he's, 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 uh, he's thankfully not a child performer. Uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. although he's good. I mean, both my kids have really not from me pushing or anything. Like we don't, I, I'm trying to see what they've got in them and what they want to share and how they want to share it. And, and sort of let that evolve. But but uh, the little guy definitely spends time with the Hamilton album singing a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. He'll take the microphone into the closet and he'll sing. And uh, my older guy used to be that kid. He was at at uh, five or six years old was, I mean, the, the videos of him impersonating Michael Jackson and Justin Bieber and him singing. Um, you know, he's, he's sort of pulled back on that. I hope he'll find it again. He's into music. He'll play piano and guitar and stuff. Um, so I don't know. I would hope I would be supportive. Um, whether my, you know, what were my parents supportive? Uh, they were, I, I think I put a lot of, of weight on myself. Like I put a lot of pressure on myself around that because the path for me was, was so clearly going to medical school. Uh, and the hopes of the family were so high around that, you know, because um, you work really hard academically to to put yourself in that direction, um, that the the change of path and the, the sort of making a hard left turn to head somewhere else and go to grad school for theater, you know that was that was scary for me. I think they were supportive. You know, looking back at it, I it's easy to go. Well, I, I had two years in grad school, and the MCATs were still good for one year, so. Uh, I had a, I had a, a sort of safety net, if you will, of saying to my parents, so I can go to med school after grad school if it doesn't, if, if I'm not finding work. Um, so that probably made my parents feel better. But I was telling you guys before we, uh, before we started recording that I had just gotten this whole shipment of stuff from a storage unit on the East Coast with a lot of my career memorabilia. And one of the things that I, I pulled out of there was, this framed poster of my Broadway debut when I went on as Raoul in Phantom of the Opera. And there's an article that was like a, it's a two page article in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> where my parents bust up 190 people to right. see the show, bought them tickets to the show, <laughs> bought them dinner. Um, <laughs> and my parents are not, independently wealthy like it's not like just a thing that they could do like this was a celebration of me hitting this milestone that i mean i i was reading it the other night and and full disclosure i was like sobbing like a baby because there's all all my teachers were there um you know from like elementary school Mm. like teachers were there and and my grandmother's may they rest in peace, like just to read what people were saying and how much fun they had taking the bus up all just to support me. 
like how much joy they got out of coming to support me. And I, you know, I knew that I was surrounded by all this love, but to be older and wiser now and, and really be able to appreciate what that was, what my parents did for me. It's like, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit mind boggling, super overwhelming. So my parents super, super supported me is the short answer to the question. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, ironically, I remember B.B. Newworth saying to me that uh, one of the reasons she went to California was to become famous so that she could come back to right. Broadway <laughs> and uh, star in Broadway musicals. Um, is that on your radar at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, I was just, somebody was just asking me, what are the roles that you want to play? And, I mean, I want to play George, right? Sunday in the Park of George. Or I, uh-huh. I want to play Sweeney at some point. And I want to, I want to play Billy and Carousel in this revival uh, idea that I've been developing for a while. And there's just so many great uh, roles that, I mean, you know, Peter, when I was coming out of CCM, you were kind enough to give me some very glowing reviews in La Mancha. Um, and it set me up to think I was going to walk into the, you know, casting rooms in the sure. city and get cast as a leading man at age like 24. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, there's guys like Mark Kudish and Brian Stokes Mitchell and Brian Darcy James and guys who are like, you know, trailblazing that path. And then there's just not a lot of leading men roles, right? There's just not a, there's not a lot of parts. So it's super competitive. And, uh, I, I've been on this journey to, you know, understanding business and how it works and finding myself in, in, you know, what roles am I right for? And it's nice to think about these parts that are still there that I really want to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to head back to Broadway. Uh, God willing, whenever Broadway is back, cause yeah. mm-hmm. my heart goes out to everybody. It is, it is a tragic situation. Well, perhaps you can come back to Broadway in uh, Revival of City of Angels with Corey Cotton, you in the leading roles. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's a great idea. You know, Casting. Uh, <laughs> you, uh, I did City of Angels, and, 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 you know, as I'm sure you guys have experienced in this pandemic where we're, 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 we're Zooming with, with people far and wide from, you know, friends old and new, and I, I was Zooming with uh, – uh, so in, in high school, I started doing musicals in high school and I, I did them a, because I had gotten hurt as an athlete and wanted to stay busy, uh, and had no idea that I could sing or anything and started getting cast in musicals. And it was the teachers who cast me in these things, our music teacher, uh, Chris Bass and acting teacher, Celeste McMenamin and the director, this guy, Joe Jalora, who, saw in me something I didn't even know I had, right? So I started playing leads in high school musicals just for fun because I was going to med school. Like, it was all just for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the guys who was at high school, uh, well, so Joe Jalore was this guy who directed the shows, and I hadn't seen Joe in 20-plus years and then was on a Zoom. Out, He's out here in California. was on a Zoom with somebody connected to my hometown who who's still close with Joe and surprised me with having Joe on. So that was kind of cool because Joe was the first guy to like be like, he's going to be Julian Marsh in West Side Story because this guy's really, really good. And I didn't even know what I was doing. Um, 
And Joe's assistant was this guy, Drew Malotsky, who ended up creating the Triple Threat Theater Company in the hometown where I grew up. And I played Stone in City of Angels for Drew, um, which made me think of Drew. And Drew and I just Zoomed uh, last week because Drew is hosting an event for the JCC in uh, South Jersey in February and has asked me to come on and interview with him. Um, and he's been a big supporter and fan of mine. Um, so I remember city of angels. Well, I would love to do that show. Well, as you said, there's so much competition for leading man roles in new shows, but you, you've really done very well in, in with revivals and replacements. I'm so glad you got to do light in the piazza on PBS. I wish they would work out a way to have those, make those things yeah. commercially available sure. because that, is such an amazing telecast of Light in the Piazza, really. It's, it's so wonderful to have you in it with uh, Katie Clark and Victoria Clark, Katie Clark and Victoria Clark and the rest of that cast. Yeah, that was a beautiful, beautiful uh, production and a, and a very important moment in my career. And it would be nice, right, if they, if they, uh, you're, you're not the first person who uh, who's mm. who's longed for that. I I mean, we, there's so many of us who are just like, well, why? I think PBS is airing shows and stuff, so it'd be nice if if they uh, added Piazza to the list. That was a really really. Well, you know, some of us were lucky enough to record it, and I I treasure my <laughs> copy. But uh, uh, another show you that you did that I didn't get to see, but I have a friend who saw it, and to this day he always talks about it. Is uh, I guess it was one of your first things when you did on the town in London. Oh wow! Yeah, <clears throat> yes, yeah, I, I heard good things about that too. Yeah. That was uh, that was a bit of a terrifying experience for me, <laughs> in, in a crazy way. I mean, I had, I had just gotten married um, and then got that job. I was I was consciously making an effort in my career at the time to not understudy, you know, because my first three Broadway shows were the national tour of Pimpernel, uh, and then Phantom, and then Oklahoma where I understudied uh, some amazing roles in those shows. But then I said, I didn't want to understudy anymore. I wanted to play those parts. And, you know, when you, when you do that, sometimes you have to sacrifice work for a while. So I was, I was, uh, you know, trying to, um, trying to what, trying to say to the Broadway community, you know, I want you guys to see me as a lead. And, and in doing that, they're like, yeah, well, maybe we will, maybe we won't. And it, it took, <laughs> It took some time. And so I went to London, uh, gratefully to do that show. And, you know, I had met Betty Comden and Adolph Green doing Hallelujah Baby at the York Theater um, and had this dream come true moment, you know, right out of CCM, actually, where I, I was meeting some of my heroes, you know. Um, and, and so I was a big fan of On the Town already because I, I was a big fan of them. and. Um, but I went to London and I was terrified because I was basically, I had never traveled to Europe before. And now I was living in Europe uh, by myself doing this production where we only, we were in rep at the, at the Coliseum theater, which is the home of the English national opera. So we had this 80 piece orchestra or something unbelievable, <laughs> but we only did one show every three to five days. Oh my gosh. And we weren't making enough money to like, you know, 
jet around Europe. Like I, it wasn't like I could just like hop up flight to, you know, Ibiza or something. Like it was, it was like, you gotta like, you know, see the, 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 whatever. I just did whatever I could in England basically. Um, and took trains, most of but I was by myself. So I was a little like down because I just got married and my wife wasn't there. And also the sun never shines in England. Um, <laughs> I was like, man, it's gray here. And that's bringing me down. But I, the, the, the big story of on the town for me was that, you know, opening night, my whole family was flying over. Wow. Uh, I mean, a lot of people they didn't take a bus. <laughs> yeah, they, couldn't, they couldn't take a bus. So they were, they were, uh, they were, they were flying over and I got the flu and oh, no. this was like, this was not the easiest thing for me in London, A, because I wasn't really sleeping with weird sort of circadian rhythm stuff over there. And then B, the, the weather had it like it was just, you know, singers or Broadway people will, will know that the sort of the struggles of like when you're not 100%, um, but the demands of the show or the role require you to be 100%. And I had to sing like some high A's over mm-hmm. a 60 piece orchestra you know, in a big operatic production of this show. And uh, <laughs> so so was, what happened was I lived in this flat uh, on Drury Lane in the West End, which is unbelievable. And there were, there was only one other person in the building. The other two units in the building were, were empty. I got the flu. I was trying to get better uh, knowing that, you know, everybody's coming over to see me in this thing. And I opened my flat door to leave the trash on the landing, which is how, how you did it in this building. And the drafts in the building sucked the door shut behind me and locked me out of my apartment. <laughs> now I'm in, I'm in basically a bathrobe oh, no. uh, in the dead of winter in, in London with no heat on in the oh, stairwell yeah. of this building. Oh, and <laughs> I go upstairs to the only other person who's in the building and she's a Swedish opera singer who speaks no English. And I'm, I'm a crazy man now knocking on her door. She doesn't know who I am. I'm in a bathrobe. <laughs> And she doesn't speak English. So, so I'm begging her for like a blanket. And I also don't, this is like in the, I forget what year it was, but it wasn't like, here's your iPhone that works everywhere in the world. I had like a, a, a cell phone in London that worked on some SIM card that like, I didn't, I couldn't just call anywhere and didn't have any contacts for like phone numbers in my phone. Um, and so I ended up spending, uh, about an hour in that stairwell, like getting sicker with the flu and then being like, well, I have no choice. I got to like go out on the streets of London and figure this out. And so I like, I was like roaming the West end in a bathrobe. My God. Uh, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Trying to find uh, a pub that was open because it's the middle of the night and get somebody to call a locksmith who ultimately came and uh, drilled me into my apartment. And the next morning my whole family arrived and we, we opened the show that night, which was just hilarious. But I never heard them ringing. No, I never heard them at all till there was you. 
There were birds in the sky But I never saw them winging No, I never saw them at all Till there was you We've talked about Broadway, we've talked about London, we've talked about uh, Los Angeles. You, you are all over the map here, being able to do art worldwide. Um, you are also involved in Tennessee for the Tennessee's art, uh, the Tennessee Arts Academy. Tell me how that came about and what is the Tennessee Arts Academy? It's an amazing organization. So, so the Tennessee Arts Academy provides professional development to a, a couple hundred teachers every summer on the campus of Belmont University in Nashville. And it's essentially fully funded for these teachers. So I got involved because uh, Rebecca Luker, may she rest in peace, um, she and I had a concert together at the Library of Congress uh, an amazing time of working on Victor Herbert music, which is, you know, it's a rare opportunity to do that with, especially with somebody like her. And, um, she became a buddy and, uh, and obviously is, is dearly missed by us all. Um, but she had, she had, Rebecca had been a guest artist for the Tennessee arts Academy's annual gala. And so she referred me to Frank Bluestein, who's the executive director of the Academy and said, you know, that every year the Academy finds its next gala artist through referral from the artist before. Um, and so she referred me and I went down to Tennessee and met these folks and I was blown away by what they're doing, celebrating teachers who, you know, I've, I've you know, mentioned teachers a few times in our conversations, how, how influential and important teachers are and were to me. And I feel are to, to our young people. Um, and so, uh, I fell in love with the place, um, and became, you know, kind of, uh, brothers from another mother with Frank, um, who is now kind of family and, uh, and I'm proud to be an honorary board member for them. And, and, and they, they held their academy virtually this year and asked me to help. And so I ended up hosting an evening of conversations with Sting and Neil Patrick Harris and Norm Lewis and Eden Espinoza um, over Zoom to help them uh, celebrate the teachers virtually because we couldn't be there in person. So it's a, it's a really cool, really cool organization. <laughs> Did you uh, uh, get close with Sting during the last ship? Yeah. I mean, he's, He's, you know, I've, I've had this amazing career, uh, the, the blessing of working with some of just the most talented people. And, uh, and Sting is the top of the list because uh, not only is he, you know, this genius of an artist, but he's just a great human. Um, so, yeah, Sting um, was kind enough, you know, to help with the Academy. And he, I mean, he's always been there when I asked for, for, for favors like that, if it's for a good cause. Um, and I don't ask a lot, but, uh, when I have asked, he's, he's a mensch, as you say. 
Uh, tell us about your uh, your work on the last ship. Were you involved with it uh, before it came to Broadway? I was. Um, I was just talking about it on a Zoom last night because I was zooming from my living room where uh, I two pieces of the set are on my walls here because they the last ship had this massive interior hull of a ship as as the back wall of the set, and as they were taking it down when the show was closing, I said, "What are you guys doing with that?" And they're like, well, we're, you know, we're, we're chopping it up and getting rid of it. And I was like, well, that's tragic. We should keep, like, can I get a couple pieces of it? And so we cut it into artwork. Sting took a piece and the cast signed the back. And I took a couple pieces and threw them on a pickup truck. I was living in a house in New Jersey at the time. And uh, they're some of the most special, you know, Broadway show memorabilia that I've got. So I shipped those things to LA. Um, yeah, the the last ship uh, we did. I was. I think they had done a reading or two of it before I came on board. The show was changing uh, pretty quickly as far as storyline and characters, and I came on board to do the development reading where they raised the money and then opened it out of town in Chicago, and then uh, we brought it to New York with the great Jeffrey Seller. A show that we were going to get here this past year um, at um, the Jewish Museum, Harmony. You did that as well, didn't you, as I recall? Yeah, Harmony was uh, was awesome. Um, that was at La Jolla? No, so they did a production at La Jolla. That uh, wasn't yours. That was not. This was uh-huh. David Warren directing uh, a sort of revamped version of it. Um, this was with Brian Darcy James and Stephen Buntrock, uh, Tom Warren, David, and, uh, another David. There were five or six of us. Um, and funny enough for that show, uh, I had not really played any lead roles yet. This was pretty early in my career as well. Um, uh, yeah, it was actually around around uh it was before on the town um and they the only role that was still open was the bass in the in in the harmony group (laughs) and i sang bass in throughout high school in my acapella group and in choir and stuff um so i i just sort of didn't get some sleep for a couple nights and let my voice (laughs) drop (laughs) a fifth and uh and went in and felt at home again, singing bass. And that was a really special experience. And that's just a shame that, that the producer on that show committed fraud and was writing bad checks. It was, a, it was, a, it was a mess. And, but Barry uh, Manilow is, is a dear human as well. And, uh, and it was very special getting to meet him and work with him. And uh, he was kind enough throughout the process to, you know, cherish the guys. And he invited us to perform with him, you know, at Madison Square Garden and in Vegas and just do different things to try and keep the show alive, which was really cool. I remember when that all went down. I forget who I was writing for at the time, but it was really quite, quite upsetting, obviously, to many people. And I remember uh, asking Brian for a comment and he was like, no comment. Really? Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, but but you're but yes, I also remember how Barry, you know, obviously really really believed in the show and tried to 
to keep it out there and, and, you know, doing the, the songs in various concerts and things of that sort. Yeah. Yeah. It was very special. And the score is beautiful. We, you know, we were in the recording studio with David Chase um, and Barry because uh, there were, I, either we were doing promotional stuff or whatever, but, but we recorded some stuff. I, I, I wonder if anybody's got this because we recorded stuff old school, like all of us around one mic, the way the comedian harmonists would have recorded themselves. Hmm. Um, and it was beautiful stuff. You know, we recorded some of their original stuff and then some of Barry's stuff. Um, and uh, I don't know, maybe David Chase has that stuff. You guys know him. You should <laughs> let us hear that. That was cool. Aaron, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you said that you had uh, done some high school theater. Uh, you were an athlete and you uh, got injured and you started doing some theater in high school. Uh, then you, but your focus was to go to med school and then you went to Duke, which is, uh, you know, really uh, Harvard is the Duke of the North. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, uh, did you did you continue to do theater at Duke while you were pre-med and... Uh, what did you do there? I I consciously tried not to. I tried to focus. I, I thought I would need to focus pretty hard on the on the sciences to to you know get into medical school. But I was given a scholarship to sing at Duke my freshman year that um, required me to major in music and required me to help them develop an opera program. And through through my voice recitals, I the I was exposed to the drama department, who you know just I guess came to see me sing, um, and then cast me in Carousel in college. Uh, so do you want to play Billy? And I was like, of course I want to play Billy, but I can't play Billy because I got to go to medical school. But <laughs> ah, the hell with it! I'm going to play Billy. Um, and then after that, the drama professors and my voice teachers such as kind of said, look, you should do this for a living. And I just laughed at them. Um, and, and they said, no, seriously, go try and get a summer job at a theater that has Broadway professionals and see what you think. So I threw together a headshot and a resume and I didn't even know what those were. Um, and then I, uh, went up to the Northeastern theater conference auditions with my dad. Yeah. And saw all these, you know, young performers and the ones who were like perfectly dressed and perfectly put together were for CCM. Ah. So I filed that away. I, I filed that away. I, 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 um, <laughs> I, I remember thinking, well, that's impressive. And then I got a job making 30 bucks a week at Main State Music Theater. Um, mm, yeah. Doing ensemble roles in their summer season and, you know, working with some, some Broadway folks like Mark Jacoby and uh, just some, some unbelievable artists. And I was, and I was like for the first time in the same space on the same stage with the pros. And, and that was the first time I thought, I think I could do this if I got some training. Um, All right, but you mentioned being um, an athlete, and you said you got injured. Well, I was—I broke my wrist playing baseball, which is, you know, what I then was started looking at 
what else there was to do in high school. But I ended up, I was really a, I was a discus thrower in high school, like a state ranked discus wow. thrower and javelin thrower. And I got recruited at Duke to, to do that as well. So, but that didn't last very long because I got injured. I, I kind of tore my hip flexor I, Good Lord. Uh, in college and you need your hips pretty bad. They, you can't throw a javelin if you can't, hmm. <laughs> you can't like yeah. hurl your hips in, into, into space. Um, so that ended, um, which weirdly enough in, in the, in the, in the whole look, what I just found in the gems of storage, I found, I found my discus gear. I found the, <laughs> all the training manuals I used to read. I mean, it was, it's been a, it's been a time this week going through that stuff. It's crazy. Wow. I brought up the uh, the Duke University musical theater thing because one of our listeners saw you as Billy Bigelow at Duke. Oh, oh that's uh, Alan, cool. Alan Teasley and uh, gave you good reviews. So an up and <laughs> young up and comer, Aaron Lazar, there. Uh, that's right. And I I, I was going to say this before when you were talking about your parents bringing up everybody from um, um, to see your Broadway debut in Phantom. Uh, this is. You know, you saved them a lot of money not going to medical school. That's right. So, <laughs> rent, renting the bus and paying for dinner and everything like that is. Uh, I'm going to use that because my the running joke, um, you know, particularly when I was in New York, is uh, my dad would say, every time uh, you land a new Broadway show, it costs me a fortune. Uh, <laughs> so I say, well, Dad, yeah, but you actually saved four hundred grand. Uh, yeah, you're <laughs> absolutely. And uh, not only that, but uh, given how uh, television goes these days, you can definitely get to a point where you are playing a doctor on television. That'd be great. I'd love to do that. That would that would make uh, all the medical and po- all the medical law pr- police procedurals certainly there. So <laughs> you can be a doctor on television. And I'll make the call, James. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know Audra. She's done the medical procedural. She knows Chandra. She does. And, and uh, yeah, well, we'll see. It'll be. It was. It was a blast working on Filthy Rich, and and you know, production has been shut down. God, everywhere, and hopefully, uh, TV season kicks in here uh, in a couple of weeks, and we'll see how it goes. And and nobody really knows what it's going to look like this year. Um, a lot of shows that get made will be the ones that couldn't get made last year or were supposed to get made. Um, and, uh, production budgets are doubled or tripled in some cases due to all the safety protocols. So, uh, there won't be as much getting made probably, but, um, we'll see the right role at the right time. Right. Yeah, we need Tom Cruise to come to New York to, uh, you know, get Broadway back and running and yelling at everybody to uh, stay safe, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, well, when is Broadway coming back, gentlemen? <sighs> uh, you know, uh, this, we, we've got absolutely no leadership out of the Broadway community right now. Um, I mean, Actors' Equity is trying to lead, but we really need the Broadway producers to, and the Broadway League itself to lead. Uh, but we, we, they can't even get it together for the Tony Awards. So, um, oh, you know, we we don't really know um, officially. <clears throat> the ticket refund date is uh, through June of this year uh, of 2021. Excuse me. Uh, I'd imagine that. Um, 
I'd imagine that we'll start seeing uh, Hamilton and some of the Wicked and some of the larger shows come back in the fall of 2021. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, but in talking with some of the Broadway producers um, offline and privately, they said, absolutely, we can start it up and have rehearsals and open up the theaters, but nobody knows if anybody's going to buy a ticket. You know, the ticket buyers are all mostly um, older in age. And are they going to come out to see a Broadway show? We don't know. Mm-hmm. We, don't we do hear that. Uh, well, two things. I mean, Hamilton has announced for July, correct? Yeah, July 4th. Yeah. And then also uh, I'm hearing uh, and we've discussed previously there there is talk that they are really planning to have a uh, Shakespeare in the park season, Mm. which obviously would be easier uh, for the. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And that would be wonderful. I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the Mm -hmm. one of the first things that comes back. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Well, yeah, you you. I mean, you know, in your heart of hearts that when it comes back, it's going to come back big and people are going to, I mean, how we all can't wait to go, Mm -hmm. you know, celebrate and support the arts and go to concerts and theater and do all that. It's a question of when that's actually possible. And that sounds good. I mean, the vaccine is here and hopefully uh, that allows people to, it's a question also of the tourist dollar versus the the local theater goer dollar and, and, and whether mm. the local community can support until the tourists is back. Right. Knows when Manhattan tourism is back. Well, yes, because also some people are saying that maybe uh, some of the first shows back might be uh, the, you know, the normal brief runs by the not-for-profit theaters like uh, Lincoln Center and Manhattan Theater Club and the Roundabout. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Hmm. So, Aaron, uh, before we let you go, uh, I know that you've been working on, uh, as well as performing, a lot of uh, producing stuff, and you have some uh, producing projects that you're working on. You Are you writing a television show or a movie, or what was it that I was reading? Uh, I have the rights to a book on the end of the Ed Koch administration, uh, uh-huh. which, which is pretty fascinating, and, and I'm working with... Uh, some some fancy guys nick nick Pelleggi, who wrote goodfellas and casino yeah mm-hmm. um and then a uh, producer richard gladstein who produced finding neverland and cider house rules and uh we have our package together so we're you know we're in development we're taking it out and and seeing if we can find the right buyer for it um which would be a uh probably a three to four season uh television series but uh, it's been a, a, a joy and an incredible learning experience to, you know, learn how to, how to develop a television series. And then, you know, the biggest thing that I was working on pre, pre-pandemic is we were in the process of raising $30 million to create Universal Studios for Broadway in Times Square called Living Broadway. Um, and I was spearheading that project with a team of 10 people in operations, management, design, legal, IP, consulting. Uh, it was massive. And, uh, and I hope uh, that we can get that back on track when, uh, when things come back around. Well, 
Aaron, I want to thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. Really appreciate it. You can catch up with Aaron Lazar at AaronLazar.com. We'll have that in the show notes as well as his uh, new album, Broadway-Lullabies.com, which will be in the show notes as well. We've played a few tracks here as well for you to uh, take a quick listen to. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, when these other projects come back together, you know, come talk with Peter, Michael, and me again. Oh, that'd be great. Thank you guys very much. And uh, happy, healthy, safe New Year to everybody. We'd like to thank BetterHelp for continuing to sponsor Broadway Radio. We've been talking for a few weeks about BetterHelp and the benefits of talking with one of their professional counselors. I've spoken with many listeners throughout 2020, and I know that... The lack of being able to go to live theater has impacted all of us. From friends who work in the industry, not being able to pay their rent and put food on the table, all the way through fans who dearly miss the curtain rising at 8.07 p.m. as it gave them a respite from the everyday travails of life. The global theater community is just that, a community that we have all come to depend upon one another. BetterHelp can be a part of your community and help you make it through the hard times. Now, I'm not saying that your licensed therapist is going to sing before the parade passes by, but they will help you hold your head up high. BetterHelp will match you with your own licensed professional therapist, but also recognizes that you may need to make a change, so they make it easy and free to change counselors. You can talk with your counselor in many ways, by phone, by video, by messages using the BetterHelp app, Whatever suits your needs in a convenient, safe, and private online environment. Come on, give your best friend a break. They are not professional counselors, but BetterHelp is. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours without having to ever sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is available worldwide and is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. We know that 2020 has been hard financially, and financial aid is available. There's a broad range of expertise available which may not be locally available in many areas. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, anger, stress, family conflicts, anxiety, LGBT matters, relationships, grief, sleeping, self-esteem, trauma, everything. Anything that you share is confidential. One thing to note is that BetterHelp is not a crisis hotline. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener to This Week on Broadway... You'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at BetterHelp.com slash Broadway Radio. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Broadway Radio. We'd like to thank BetterHelp for continuing to sponsor Broadway Radio. Great to have Aaron on. I'm so happy that he was able to join us from the West Coast and get up on a Sunday morning and uh, and be with us on Broadway Radio. His album is truly a, a treat to listen to. And and I don't know, did he hint there that maybe he'll do a volume two? Yeah, yeah, sounded like it. So yes. yeah, so I'm looking forward to that too. And get Laura Benanti. I was I was funny. I was going to bring up, but you guys were talking. Um, Laura Benanti, Laura Benanti's daughter also is like, mommy, stop singing all the time. Really? You know? yeah. Yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> well, you know, it's and he made the point that uh, that these people were talking about, especially Laura and he and uh, who was the oh, Audra, you know, they have very powerful voices. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But so it's I think it's fine when they're singing softly uh, l- like lullabies. <laughs> but when not, it can, I, you know, I guess it can kind of resound in an apartment, you know. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. So, 
this week has uh, been a rough ending to 2020 as we uh, got the word that beloved uh, Rebecca Luker had passed away from complications related to ALS. Uh, and we, th- uh, you know, there's been so much said uh, about Rebecca and her impact on Broadway, but I, but Peter and Michael, what are your thoughts about Rebecca? Well, uh, you know, of course, it's hard to to know what to say. We we had mentioned her, I I think, just last week in terms yeah. of that new album uh, that that has been released uh, that she has with Sally Wilford. Uh, but I uh, was privileged to uh, see her live and hear her live many times, and and I was thinking that she did so much um, in, in her career that there were some things that I did, didn't immediately come to mind, but then did. Uh, she has that wonderful, complete recording of Wonderful Town mm-hmm. uh, with Karen Mason on the, on the J label. She has that wonderful, basically complete recording of Brigadoon mm-hmm. uh, with John McGlynn conducting. Barrett. And th- those are just two things. I, I have to say, I, I, I guess I'm the... I guess I'm the only person on this podcast who say that I actually sang with her. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean with her, uh, like at the same time. Because <laughs> well, I sang with her in the car, but she was on her CD player. <laughs> oh, well, I, well, this was in Carnegie Hall. So, uh, yeah, I was in the New York City Gay Men's Chorus for years. And in 1992, we did a concert in in tribute to Leonard Bernstein with Betty Comden and Adolph Green as the host. So that was pretty amazing. And Rebecca was really kind of at the start of her career, uh, but she was one of the guests. She had, she had just done secret garden and uh, she had done a couple of things previous. I guess she had been in phantom already, but um, she, we did the end of act one was selections from West side story. And we had her as Maria Debbie Gravitt as Anita, uh, Kevin Gray, a uh, wonderful Broadway artist who also who died mm. way too young, mm. as Tony, and then Kurt Ullman, who sang riff on the uh, complete recording of West Side Story that Bernstein conducted um, as riff. So, and uh, one of these, well, uh, uh, as part of that that series of numbers, Rebecca and Debbie did uh, a boy like that. I have a love, but then we also did the the end of the segment was the quintet or the tonight ensemble. Uh, I guess it's more accurately called uh, with all of those people in those roles that I just mentioned, and the chorus as the Jets and the Sharks. So um, I I do have a recording of that, uh, uh, which I, I've sent to James, so we can uh, include at least part of that, and I think you'll. You'll be amazed. It's quite rare. Uh, it's just an archival recording of that concert at Carnegie Hall in 1992. Also, at um, at that concert, Rebecca sang a beautiful song or aria, if you will, from Bernstein's Mass called "Thank You," uh, and and I've sent that along as well. So th- th- those are two uh, incredible memories that I have of her.
it's almost been 22 years since I met her under very strange circumstances. And I remember it was January 19th, 1989. Uh, I was in the bowels of the Martin Beck Theater doing a story on Bobby Wilson, who um, was the Sound of Music's child wrangler, um, there to accompany the seven Von Trapp children every step of the way, you know, supervising their costume changes, entrances and exits, you know, essentially uh, babysitting. So... Now, I don't know if Susan Shulman, the director, realized when she staged the show what her cast would have to go through when they exited stage right, only to appear in stage left in the <laughs> next scene. So to get from one side of the stage to the other at the back, the performers had to go down a flight of stairs, travel underneath the length of the stage, climb up another flight to prepare for the next entrance. So there I was, um, standing in the middle of the pathway, taking notes, and big ox that I am, um, was right in the way of Rebecca Luca when she came rushing down the stairs on her way to her next entrance. Oh, please excuse me, she hurriedly said and kept running, to which I croaked, um, hey, it's my fault. You know, she didn't hear it because quick sprinter that she was, she was already well past me. But later, when Wilson brought the kids to the lobby so they could be part of the wedding professional that uh, would enter through the house, uh, Rebecca was in place in her bridal gown. But out of the corner of her eye, she spotted me way across the lobby. And she left Captain Von Trapp for a moment over me and say, listen, I feel terrible about bumping into you, but there was nothing I could do. There was just so much time we have to get from one place to another. And it isn't much. And she, I hope you don't think I was rude. No, no. I thought she was lovely, in fact, and, um, and did ever since. Now, the next time we met, we spent a good deal of time together when she was inducted in the Alabama Stage and Screen Hall of Fame. I was asked to go down there and uh, run the press conference. Now, she's from Helena, Alabama, um, a town with 6,000 population. Um, uh, little town, and uh, but her mother, Martha, was a great Broadway musical enthusiast, and there were four kids in the family, and um, she used to, um, I, I met the mother, and she told me that uh, she used to drive around the car and say, okay, kids, we're going to sing, and she noticed that this, her third child, uh, Rebecca, really had a very nice natural ability, um, uh, but still, she didn't know that it would lead to anything. And um, Rebecca came home one day when she was um, in grandma school. No, I think it was middle school and said, I, I just want a singing contest. Um, and um, ironically enough, she won by singing my favorite things <laughs> she would wind up doing on Broadway. It wasn't the last time she would sing that song. So, um, so when she was 16, uh, she came home and her mother said, you know, I just signed you up for vocal lessons. And uh, you know, mother just uh, and she said, oh, "Okay, all right." And I went, and she kept going, and um, she went to the University of Mont Montevallo, you know, which is not a school that we usually associate with Broadway stars, but um, up, appeared in the community theater there in a, a place called Town and Gown, and <laughs> um, and she met people there who kept her going and uh, believed in her and then she got into the national tour of very good eddie and while i didn't see her i can really picture her in the part that spring fairbank did in the broadway revival so then came michigan opera and then uh, all to new york and understudy and phantom and all that went with that and i have to say that night in alabama you know there's much like aaron lazar talking about his uh family and friends coming to see him so many family and friends were there to see her and yet she spent so much time with the young kids who were there who were singing in a chorus doing numbers from various shows and giving autographs and giving advice and listening and caring and all that and what I'll also remember is that when she got back to town when we both got back to town she wrote me a note and said 
it was nice bumping into you again. (laughs) (laughs) I think the last time I saw her, though, was at In the Heights. She was sitting behind me with Danny Burstein, her husband. And I have to say that I'll never forget at the end, I stood up and she was in tears. She was so moved by the show. Mm. And that's who Rebecca Luca was, somebody who really empathized, somebody who really cared, a really nice person. And, uh, you know, Kurt Vonnegut once wrote, God never wrote a good play in his life. And this was proved this week. Um, and for the last year or so, when uh, she came down with one of the worst illnesses you can get, ALS, and, oh. um, and battled it valiantly. And um, we're, we're sorry that she lost the fight. But, of course, we're glad she's not suffering anymore, too. Uh, I've been listening to so much of her, of course. I'm sure many of us we have. All have yeah, and, yeah. And, and I have to say, uh, of course, one of her finest achievements was The Secret Garden. Mm-hmm. And to listen to that song, How Could I Ever Know, mm-hmm. at this moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a song about mm-hmm. a woman, a young woman who dies young uh, in, an, in an accident, in, in the case of the of the, the musical and her husband ever since that has been frozen in grief and really not able to get over it. And finally uh, he uh, he's able to confront her memory uh, through the revitalization of her garden uh, by, by young Mary Lennox. And so finally, after all, after the, the right at the end of the show, the, the ghost of Lily appears to, to her husband and she sings how could I know I would have to leave you You know, I don't know if if Danny, uh, her husband, will ever be able to listen to that again. But but maybe maybe he will someday and and take some comfort from it because that those beautiful lyrics by Marsha Norman and that beautiful melody, which I did not attempt by Lucy Simon. It's it's just it's so it's so heartbreaking in context of of this 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 tragic event. Um. Danny and Rebecca were uh, uh, repeat guests on um, Terry Gross's um, NPR oh. radio show. Yes, uh, we we just had. Uh, I put the the latest one, the latest interview uh, from October in our Broadway Radio feed. So it ran on the Saturday uh, podcast. If you want to go back into Broadway Radio's feed and listen to it again, uh, it's there. But um, 
they talk about how um, because of the uh, ALS condition and you lose control of your uh, over your muscles, Rebecca couldn't sing anymore. So Danny and Rebecca would listen to Rebecca's Rebecca's albums, and uh, I mean it. It's yes. just it, it it it's so wonderful and heartbreaking. But I mean, Terry Gross, the, her interviews are just always amazing. And mm-hmm. to hear uh, Rebecca and Danny uh, talk about—I mean, you could feel their love together so much in in this interview. I really recommend everybody go back and uh, take a listen to that. They have so many wonderful interviews on uh, Fresh Air on NPR. Oh, and something that uh, not everyone may know is that Danny and Rebecca were very um, involved in the selection of the artists for the Kennedy Center Honors. Hmm. Uh, So that's another way in which they, uh, you know, I mean, they were they were very much uh, (laughs) not all about themselves, but but great supporters of other artists and uh, and fans of other artists. So that that's something I think it's important for people to know about them. Okay, so um, I guess that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to your final podcast, you'll be able to find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at Broadway Radio. Uh, radio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including Aaron Lazar's uh, lullaby, Broadway Lullabies album and uh, all of his uh, other stuff, plus a uh, great photograph of Aaron. So uh, check that out. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Virtually every musical has a noun in its title, but I'm looking for one that was in the title of a musical from the 70s. But some years before it opened, Sondheim had written a song that used that same noun as a preposition. What's the 70s musical, the Sondheim song, and the show from which it came? Well, The Wiz is the 70s musical of which I spoke. And in 1964, Sondheim wrote for Anyone Can Whistle, Come Play Wiz Me. Uh, This, of course, occurred to me when listening to the new recording of Anyone Can Whistle, (laughs) the spectacular recording uh, that's on uh, J Records, and um, such a tremendous achievement. So only one person got it. And his initials are TJ. And you know I don't mean Tom Jode or Tommy John. No, Tony Janicki came through once again. Let's see if he does this week. And if any others can, too. Eight musicals and their original productions ran somewhere between 1,500 and 1,599 performances. Writers on one of these 1,500-plus hits had previously written a play that had essentially, essentially is the key word now, dealt with the characters who would show up later in a different 1,500-plus performance hit musical. But these writers had nothing to do with it. That later's musical success must have rankled them, for their play, essentially about the same character, didn't even run 15 performances. (laughs) Name the writers, the musicals, and the unsuccessful play. Hmm. All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia 
at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.